think that that was my best time in my life to be there skiing in the powder. Well, my name is Martin Heuberger and I listen to the Hour podcast. <laughs> to the Avalanche Hour podcast. <laughs> That's the name. <laughs> oh, God. You're tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast, your source for great conversations within the snow and avalanche community. I'm your host, Matthias Walcher from the Austrian Association for Snow and Avalanches. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by Wissen Avalanche Control, safety through innovation. With additional sustaining support from Gordini, we keep you outside longer. And open snow. Visit opensnow.com to get started with a free trial and enter the discount code Avalanche Podcast at checkout to receive 30% off your first year of Open Snow All Access. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Hi, everybody. This is the first European episode of this winter season straight from the heart of the Alps. I hope you have had already a good start to the season, despite a very slow start in North America. Here in the Alps, at least on the north side of the main ridge, we were more lucky in this regard. We had a good and early start this season, um, which was maybe the first time in years. We got lots of snow from November onwards, and accordingly, a slightly above average and apart from superficial problems, a very stable snowpack. Today, Anna Heuberger and I are talking to a pioneer of heli skiing in Canada. Martin Heuberger came to British Columbia as a young Austrian and was the first guide with Mike Quigley helicopter skiing in 1972. That was just a few years after Hans Gmoser and Leo Grillmeier founded CMH, the first company ever in this field, at least to my knowledge, a time where helicopter skiing was still in its infancy. I am very excited to hear and learn about these early years. I hope you are too. I am also very excited because this also means I get to interview my dad. <laughs> and I would suggest we dive right in. Martin, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I grew up on a farm in Austria, in the middle of the biggest mountains from Austria. And I went to a farming school and was supposed to be a farmer. But I always liked the outdoors and especially skiing was one of my favorite sports. And <clears throat> soon I realized that I need another job besides farming. And so I started to work in the ski industry as a ski guide and ski instructor. How, how was the, the ski industry in Austria at that time? That must have been the 60s, I assume? Well, it started really soon, very in a small scale after the war. Skiing is like uh, in some areas, in the 50s, there came the first guests, mostly Germans and from the nearby countries for ski touring. Most of it was ski touring. And then a few ski lifts developed in the 50s, 60s. 
but in the 70s, it grew incredibly. Lifts were built, hotels were built, and the tourism boomed in Austria. Mm -hmm. So it made sense for uh, yeah. a young Austrian yeah. to yeah. enter into this industry yeah. because there was yeah. a lot of work it, to... And it was booming you know, industry mm -hmm. in those days. So how did it happen that uh, a young boy from rural Austria having a farm that he got to go to Canada? Well, that was a bit of luck because I worked in 1970 in a racing camp in the summer. This was a summer skiing racing camp for children mainly. <clears throat> and Mike Wigley came with six, seven kids from Canada, from Alberta. And he was in those days ski school director from Lake Louis and coached those kids in Lake Louis in his ski schools. And he, they were very promising young racers and he brought them to Austria to a summer camp for training. And that's how we met. And Mike offered me, I must maybe before mention that Canada was always my dream country. I liked the outdoors, I liked the animals, the wild animals, I read books about Canada, and Canada was for me a, one of the, or a just favorite country I wanted to visit one day. <clears throat> so when Mike offered me a job in the 70s that I should start, he had the idea to start heliskiing. He was a, the ski school director from Lake Louis, had a ski, a ski shop, which his wife, Bonnie, ran, and uh, wanted to start heliskiing. Heliskiing, I had no idea, you know, but I did hear a little bit because Hans Moses CMH worked already, or was already in business for three years. So I did have a little idea what that could be, but I took the offer. So was it a hard decision for you to take whether to go to Canada or not at this time? It wasn't a hard decision at all. Hard was to tell my boss, uh, who was also the president from the Ski Instructor Alliance, that I'm leaving because he made me very quick, uh, sort of almost his assistant. <clears throat> and he wished that I stay with him. But Canada was for me much better, and so I decided dream. to go. Yeah, the dream. And uh, what did your parents say? I mean, they expected you to be on the farm and work. <clears throat> yeah, it was interesting. My dad, as a farmer all his life and hunter all his life, very much outdoors person. He did agree on it and he sort of laughed, uh, smiled and uh, said, you got to take that chance. You were born in 1945 and I guess you started skiing in the 50s and 60s and I'm just wondering how did you figure out that Canada was the place you wanted to go to ski? Well, of course, there were already the first ski movies around. And, you know, in the ski industry, things like this don't stay a secret. You know, there were 
the dock around that they do ski in Canada. Of course, there were the wildest stories around that you need a snorkel to go to the powder and that it was 40 below all the time. And so some tried to scare me that it's that cold and they stay in really primitive accommodations and you may be freezing. Did, did the expectations match reality? Quite, yeah, they did. <laughs> <clears throat> they did. It, <laughs> we started in Valmont. Mike was still running the ski school in Lake Louis. And we started, or he started the heli skiing in Valmont. And I was his first guide. So whenever there were people to be guided in the powder, I was up in Valmont. <clears throat> and the first group I guided, I stepped in a helicopter. I've never been in a helicopter before. And I never saw those mountains before. I had a map. Uh, it was a map one to 50,000 and not as good as the Alpenvereins maps in Austria with one to 25,000 and shaded, you said. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so I was a little nervous the first time I stepped in a helicopter, paying guests in the back <laughs> and flew into the mountains I've never seen before. But Lucky, I found a, a big glacier and the weather was half decent. So I could ski the first day without a problem and the guests were very happy. And I was very happy because it was good. So there was no tracks to be seen. Do you think you were the first person to ever ski in those mountains? <clears throat> Not in Belmont because here I have to explain you how we came into the caribous. Hans Moser with CMH started about three years earlier in the Bagabus. <clears throat> and Hans and Mike Wiggle were friends in those days. Hans was the best man from Mike. And they did a ski tour together into the caribous. And uh, Hans said, no, the caribous are not good for heli skiing. And so Mike thought that he is going to open the caribous for heli skiing. But when we went to Velmont with the first group, Hans was already there with a big group, which he took out from the Bagabus. So we had friction because these were the same mountains. And we started every morning, the first one, first surf, you know, to the best places. So it wasn't easy. Velmont was difficult because there were only worldwide two heli-ski operations and they were in a, in a small town in the same small town which made of course uh, which created friction but uh, it was not long and then i i made friends from the guy with, with the guides from hans Moser, and we decided that we alternate one day he flies out first and one day i fly out first or well, we fly out first so if I understand that right, there were no tenures? No, no, no. That was all crown land and no regulations and no tenures, nothing. There, there were no regulations at all for heli-skiing. It hasn't existed before. It was something so new, the regulations came later on. 
usually when there were big problems which came to the court or accidents, then slowly it got regulated. And to my feeling, over-regulated now. <laughs> do, you, do you think that this, this non-regulated space in, with regard to tenures was a reason why there, were, there, were, uh, there was friction between CMH and Migridia? No. No, I don't think that was the reason, really. <clears throat> in Hellis King, there are certain times where you can only use a few mountains because of avalanche hazard, because of flying conditions, because of snow quality. And uh, so when two competing companies fly out from the same spot, of course, it's a problem because there's maybe only one landing open in those days. You know, and so we did meet sometimes in the mountains, <clears throat> both helicopters aiming for the same landing. <clears throat> but then it was also that we had, we start, just started. We had a jet ranger, which took maximum seven people. <clears throat> and uh, CMH had already a two or four. So they could load the whole group at once with nine guests. So we felt a bit small and a little <laughs> sort of, we had to push our elbows out to, to be able to, to work there. I'm just trying to imagine what the mindset of your guests back then must have been like. It must have been quite adventurous to sign up for your company. I mean, there wasn't a big safety record or anything back then, and there wasn't a lot of experience with, you know, flying out into the mountains with a helicopter and being dropped off and skied down by a guide. What, what were the guests like? Well, the first group were mostly Canadians. And which Mike knew from his business, from the ski school and so, and, uh, and they were the first guests. And very super guests, some became really close friends and came year after year to ski with us. Were these people skiers? I imagine... Oh yeah, they, they were good skiers, very experienced skiers. In those days we skied two, two meter ten long skis and the narrow skis, of course, not that easy. But they were experienced skiers. They had to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they came for the skiing, or how was the accommodation? How was their it service? Was, was not in the standard from now. The accommodations were very primitive. Here, I probably have to explain to you that Mike made reservations in a hotel in Vermont for his first group. He told me uh, we stay in such a hotel. When we came, the hotel was blocked by the CMH group, and we had to move into a small motel in the back of the town. So that was the first <laughs> thing that we were ending up in a, in a primitive accommodation. Yeah. <clears throat> Wasn't it ever that the accommodation burned down at one point? Wasn't there that was later in Blue River already. Okay. How did you end up working out of the river? <laughs> That's interesting. 
because there came, I think it was in the second year of operation, there was a time with very little snow and high winds. And <clears throat> I did hear all the time from the truckers and loggers which became, which came up from south, from Kamloops and so, that the snowbanks are twice as high in Blue River than in Belmont. That made me wonder, you know, because they, they talked about the enormous amount of snow in Blue River. And Belmont had much less, half the snow. And then there was a time, high winds, the glacier were ruined by wind, and the trees didn't have enough snow. And we had our guests. So we were really in a precarious situation. So Mike, Mike decided to send me down with, by that time we had already the 204, not the 27, the jet engine, which held nine guests. <clears throat> so Mike sent me down with the 204, with nine guests to Blue River. I have never seen Blue River, I've never <laughs> seen the mountains, and I didn't have a map. For Belmont, we had a map but for Blue not. And the loggers told me, I of course asked around by the locals and loggers I met, <clears throat> that Millage Creek, one of those creeks, they do a lot of logging. And so the cut blocks, they of course they make ski areas. <clears throat> and above the cut blocks is an enormous amount of meadows and not meadows, but uh, open terrain. So I, I've had the feeling Millage Creek I, I should find. <clears throat> and when we flew from Velmont, in Velmont it was overcast, flat light, overcast and windy. And we flew towards Blue River and the clouds came lower and lower and lower. And by, by the time we arrived in Blue River, it was totally on the ground. We could do nothing because it was sucked in. So we landed on front of the hotel down there, it was a Sandman Inn hotel, <clears throat> and went for coffee with the guests. And Mike was on the road with another group because we wanted to take both groups down to Skida. <clears throat> and Mike arrived and we saw there is not a chance for the helicopter to fly into the mountains. The weather was not good and tough. So we had another coffee and another coffee and we were sweating because in those days, we were short of money and we burned already a lot flying from Velmont to Blue River, which is 100 kilometers. And so I flew back up to Velmont. We didn't ski one or turn and burned a lot of money that day. So we were sitting in the evening, scratching our heads, what we do. God thanks, sooner or later, snow came in Velmont and we managed that season. But in the spring from that same season, we went again to Blue River when the weather was good. <clears throat> and we saw really good terrain. And so the next season, we moved everything to Blue River already. I think that was 75. And uh, in that start of the first season in Blue River, <clears throat> it was probably the heaviest snow year I ever saw. You couldn't see the logging trucks on the highway. The snowbanks were so high. You know, and, and some small houses were totally snowed in. They had a little tunnel to the door, to the house door. And, uh, but skiing was excellent, but only the trees. You know, we had a lot of tree runs in Blue River. <clears throat> and 
we skied maybe five, six weeks, only trees. And that we didn't even see the big mountains in the back. <clears throat> we knew they are there because by that time we had maps. <clears throat> and uh, one day we made lunch on top, on the, on the top landing, and it lifted. And then we saw the big glaciers. We packed the lunch in and we went over to ski those big faces across in the monarchies. <clears throat> and from then on, we were sort of in heaven because the weather improved. It was getting into February and uh, we had an incredible time. We doubled the guests in almost every season because the people liked that. And skiing was just really good because so many snowfalls we had like uh, almost every second day we got a fresh snowfall. So you obviously had experience as a ski guide from your time here in Austria, but I mean, Canada must have been different. You have so little data, your lack of weather stations. Uh, I can also imagine there wasn't a very detailed avalanche bulletin out back then or people that you can share information with. How did you do your risk assessment? How did you decide what slopes were safe to ski on? And in regard to avalanches, for example, but also how did you know, you know, how to plan your day to be back before the light goes flat or the next front comes in and you lose visibility? How did you go about your risk assessment? We had a weather station, and, or I has a weather station, and I went to the weather station every day and we became friends. The guy who ran the weather station uh, phoned me every morning and later on he sent me the important factors about what's important for making an avalanche forecast. But it started slowly. In the beginning, we skied three runs, which were quite safe, not so steep. And later on in the open terrain, we didn't go in the really steep stuff right in the beginning. You know, and, and by that, I think it was this third or fourth year, we started to invite or people came and ask whatever they to come. And the first really experts from the ones we learned a lot were from Alta Snowbird, from Salt Lake area. You know, there was a Pink Sandal, who was the chief snow ranger there. He came every year. And Peter Leff was uh, the assistant from Binks. He moved and guided with us. He guided several years with us. So we learned a lot because those guys were absolutely profis. In those days, I'm sure we didn't have in Europe a station which did such a work on snow and avalanche like in Snowbed Alta. That was. Uh, Edwater wrote that book, uh, The Avalanche Hunter, <clears throat> and we got to talk to most of those guys. And I even went down there to look what they did and skied with them a week. I was invited to there. But <laughs> later on, sort of, they started more to control the avalanches. When I came down there, the Binks said, we are not forecasting avalanches so much anymore because the pressure to keep the hotels and the ski areas open was so high that they started to shoot at the avalanches. 
they had a, a cannon up there, 12 centimeter from a war. I think it was from the Korean War, a 12 centimeter. And they had a basement down there with the ammunition, which was incredible. There was an automatic lifter, which brought up those canyons. And I went up with them at four o'clock, they turned to switch the lift on for us. And we would shoot around into the mountains and watch the avalanches. They had a, some of the ammunition was Leuchtmunition, what is that? So you could see them fly. You know, you saw, because most of it we shot across, or they were shooting across from the valley. There were the big avalanche uh, passes. And down in town, they were very professional. Down in town, there were big uh, caterpillars cleaning the road. And nobody was allowed to go outside the houses. The houses were all built on the hotels that it was safe. Of course, there were some damages sometimes. I think one time they damaged 10 or 15 cars because they didn't think it would come so big and it extended so far out where the cars were parked. But generally, from those people, we got a lot of experience because, and then we invited from Switzerland, Weissflujoch, the chief and the rest, avalanche uh, people from there, from Austria, Switzerland, mainly, and from Salt Lake area. And every year we did a training week, once we could afford that. <laughs> On the start of the season, and we always had some experts from everywhere, from first aid, from avalanche work. And so that helped a lot because we've got different influences from America, from Switzerland, from Austria. <clears throat> and it was very interesting and we got more and more experience. And of course, we got to know our area in pretty soon. We made pictures from the runs and describe the run, what to watch out for, for young guys when they came in. We could show them a whole map when we decided to go into that area. He, they could see all the runs with all the possible things to watch out for. And so we, we worked very hard to make it safer. In the beginning, I believe we were lucky <laughs> many times. And we didn't take really a high risk. You know, we held back because we knew you're dead if you take a risk. Yeah. <laughs> Makes sense. Another challenge must have been communications. How did you develop communication protocols that are used today or rescue plans? Communication was a big problem. In my first year, I had no communication to the pilot. You know, we didn't have walkie-talkies. They came in, in the early 70s. They were very heavy, very expensive, and we did not have one, nothing. So we would fly into the mountains and would most of the time from the air tell the pilot where to pick us up <clears throat> in the valley. And that was a big problem. I remember one occasion when I flew into a new uh, valley that I asked the engineer who, which had a, a handhold uh, walkie-talkies. It was a big battery with, uh, with a telephone 
Hörer on. And I took it in the rucksack, and the thing was heavier than hell. And I hated it, but I, I needed to talk to the pilot where I was and whatever, um, whatever he has to expect on the bottom landing. <clears throat> and then most of the time I, I skied down and I had a saw, a little saw in my back to cut down small crap to be able to land the helicopter. But combination was really missing in the beginning. And I think it was the second or third year where Mike bought already walkie-talkies, really big and heavy ones. But we could communicate with the pilot and the guide, but not with our base, you know. And so only <clears throat> we realized that it's very important to be able to communicate with the base. And we, had, we needed to build relay stations up on top of the mountain. But of course, that took time and money, which we didn't have. And uh, actually, one accident really made us aware that this is necessary. There was a helicopter crash not far from where we skied, maybe 20, 30 kilometers away. But we did not have communication to those people. It's a different company. <clears throat> and the helicopter crashed at 9 o'clock in the morning. And they didn't have relay stations. So they couldn't phone back home and tell them that they crashed. And there were four people died on the crash. And the other ones, most of them were badly injured. And they were laying spread out in the mountain because the helicopter rolled down. <clears throat> and that really gave us a shock because we thought that can just as much happen to us. You know, there's a helicopter crashes somewhere and we are not be able to tell anybody. And in the beginning, we didn't even tell where we were because, of course, in the skiing weather, you change from one valley into the next. And if you have, don't have communication with your base, nobody knows where you are in a rescue case. It would have been a hell of a thing to find us. How did that accident um, end? Well, the, of course, it was a 205 Bell helicopter. And uh, it's the same body like what we used then, the 212, but only one engine. And that helicopter was laid on, nobody hired those helicopters anymore. They were not allowed to fly skiers anymore because their weak point was the tail rotor shaft, the drive shaft to the tail rotor. And uh, it proved that the tail rotor, because when he flew in with the last group in the morning, he put maximum gas in, all the people in there, the lunch in there, so he was probably overweighted. And by the approach in the top of the mountain, the tail rotor, the drive shaft from the tail rotor broke. And so that, of course, brought the helicopter in a crash. And the helicopter tumbled down 500 vertical meter or more. And the people were in there. You know, so things did not look good. But one pilot, it was a Lufthansa group. One pilot got the, the radio from the guide. The guide and pilot were also dead and two people and two guests <clears throat> and climbed back up because from the bottom he didn't have 
any chance to get somebody. And from the top, he got not from where they started in Mica, he got uh, from the same company, Caribou, Ellis King, like as CMH, he got radio contact. And he told them around three o'clock in the afternoon about the accident. So of course, from then on, immediately the rescue started. But we did hear, from, of course, in the evening we heard, of, we said, holy, we have to do something about that. Then we created a plan that we have so, to have so many stations that we can talk to the base from, from a handheld microphone, uh, uh, walkie-talkie. <clears throat> and we have to tell every hour where we are. In the morning, we had to write down in the office. Shelly, my late home became my wife. She was in the office and she put over us a pin in where we started in the morning. And then whenever we change the area or on the hour, maybe 10 minutes before, 10 minutes after, if we didn't call in, a rescue started because of that accident. <clears throat> yeah, first time we forgot to call and a rescue helicopter came <laughs> and we were laying in the sun. It was springtime and we had a good day skiing on the pilot and I forgot about the hourly call. But in those days, the pilot knew each other and nothing, nothing came out. Nobody had to pay anything. The helicopter, the rescue helicopter flew at least an hour once to enter full skiing in the caribou lodge. They stopped skiing and the helicopter had to fly because they thought that we crashed. But we forgot to go. So, so nowadays, as Anna mentioned, there are also these uh, rescue plans in place so that other, other operations are informed if there's a, a bigger uh, incident and come to rescue. How did, how did those rescue plans come up? The, just like with the knowledge about snow avalanches that we used the knowledge or we used to bring people in from areas where they were very advanced, like uh, Snowbird Alta, <clears throat> Switzerland, Austria. And this rescue, it was the same thing. You know, there was a doctor in Austria who was very much involved in the rescue planning in Austria, in all Austria. <clears throat> and there was a, a guide who was very much involved in uh, heli lifting you know, on a, on a long line rescue with the helicopter. And both of them, we took over the guide. We even hired him for the whole winter. But the guy who was uh, the, the planner for a rescue was a doctor in Caprun. And uh, he brought in the three-step rescue plan. And if you had an accident and you called for number one, it meant that you and the groups with, which are with you in the helicopter, sometimes three groups, sometimes four groups, they can handle that situation. And nobody, you don't need outside help. And then you called for a two rescue. <clears throat> then it meant that all from the same company have to come to help, you know. And a three meant a disaster. That, that meant the police has to be informed and uh, 
everybody around has to be informed. There was a whole plan, a list in the office, who to phone, and that we had a, a disaster, that we need all help we can get. And so, yeah, that, but in the very beginning, we didn't have that. We thought that our shovel does the job. Yeah, we didn't. We flew out and nobody knew where we were. And we had a little first aid bag in our rucksack. <laughs> that rescue plan you say it was created in the 1970s is basically still used today and works great. Yeah, end of 70s. So Austria has a really long history in mountain rescue and has a really professional mountain rescue. How was the situation in Canada? Did you get most of your expertise regarding rescue over there or did you import some of the knowledge from over here? In Canada, it was totally different organized. And the best, what I found in Canada, were the national parks. They had a quite a, a good rescue team, but the rest, there wasn't really anything. Like around our heliski area, Blue River, for hundreds of kilometers, there was no rescue or nothing. You, you were on your own, sort of, yeah. And uh, that's why we started to ask around, and by that time we knew a lot and got a lot of close calls on the, on the, on the and of course, information where the people who are really well known for doing a good job in that field. And they all want to come and ski with us for a week, usually the training week. But sometimes we invited them during the season just to learn from them. And the rescue was a big issue that we wanted to be on top standard. And so we asked those guys to come and um, and tell us what they think and what they think would be the best for us to do. Mm -hmm. um, among your guides, were there mostly Europeans or how was this group? In the beginning, there was, of course, Mike Wiggle, his brother Norbert Wiggle, and Peter Leff was, in the second year, Peter Leff came in. Peter Leff was from out the snowbird, as I said already. And he was one of the chief snow and avalanche ranchers from that area. But then most of them were Austrians. The group I was with in my, uh, in my guiding exam, in my ski guiding exam, I brought almost all of them to Canada to, to, to work there. They all liked, of course, the new challenge. And they all came, Steiner Leo, you know, and, uh, we were close friends from the course we did together, and I knew that they're really good, you know, and, uh, and they had all a lot of experience in Europe, and that worked really well. So is it mainly because um, these were your friends and this was kind of an Austrian, or, or Austrian operation because Mike Wiggly was its head, yeah. that these people came over to help you? Yeah. Or was it because there was a scarcity of these of these experienced um, um, backcountry skiers and guides in Canada and the U.S.? Canada did not really have in those days. Um, there were different setup. They didn't really have ski guides like we had in Austria. 
or the mountain guides came, but mostly were specialized in summer work and so skiing well, started late on. And then there was, of course, <clears throat> interesting that Hans Moser started with a few Swiss guides. And that's why in CMH in the beginning were mostly Swiss guides. We had also a few Swiss guides which were very good. But uh, because of, mainly because of that I took the whole group, I did the exam with over, and they had the friends again and good people. So we, we ended up with generally Austrian and Swiss guides. You told us earlier about one of your training weeks where you wanted to introduce longline rescue and something in the exercise went really wrong. Can you describe that situation again? Of course, by that time, we had already our experience in trying to bring somebody who hurt his knee, his leg, broke his leg, to bring him down in three feet of powder in a really difficult terrain. That was very difficult and very time consuming. <clears throat> and we had the helicopters over there. And I did know in Austria by that time was helicopter rescue very common. And so I asked a guy, from Southampton, from my hometown, who was here, the leading guy for heli ski, for heli rescue, to tell me what he needs. And we bought in Austria the equipment he wanted to install and help us to get to do that. And we hired him for the whole winter. So we had him there to teach us. But then things got totally wrong on the, on the training week where he demonstrated. <clears throat> I packed a demonstrated injured person in a really steep slope. <clears throat> it was January 25 below and already three o'clock in the afternoon because we thought that's a short, quick thing. I did before the Carvers rescue and he helped me there. And then I helped him with the heli rescue. And, uh, he was coming with under the helicopter on a 10 meter rope, flying over to pick up that person I put in that rescue sack. And by the time he flies over, I looked back and I looked at us and he came on a free fall down. The cargo hook on the helicopter released and he dropped at least 30 meter. And he landed maybe, 100 meters below me, where I was with the guy, in a really steep slope with three, four feet of snow. And that saved his life, but he was badly injured. I thought that he does not survive that. I went down as fast as I could. I didn't even unpack the guy in the bicycle bag. And I pulled him out on his ski boots. Only the ski boots looked out of the snow. I pulled him out knowing that his back is probably broken, but I thought he suffocates anyway in there. So the broken back doesn't, is not the biggest problem. <laughs> and uh, of course, he didn't look good. His jaw was broken from the walkie-talkie we carried. 
and his eyes came almost out. And uh, he spoke to me in English. He was uh, from the same town of we friends here in Austria. Said we made a mistake because we had in mind to do beside the cargo hook a brusic sling to the fixed part of the helicopter, the legs. But in the end, they decided, the pilot and him, not to do that because of the problem which could occur when they come up with the injured guy, that that rope, the loose rope, could go up to the main rotor, and then the disaster would be there. So they didn't use that. And then a rescue started, which <laughs> we had to fly the healthy ones. The ones who were here, quite a few guides, a photographer, and a few press people we had in there, we had to fly them home because it was January, getting late and very cold. So we pulled the badly injured guy up on a toboggan, which we had in the helicopter, <clears throat> to that landing. In the meanwhile, the pilot flew two groups home and put some gas into the helicopter to fly us to the next hospital in Clearwater, which is 100 kilometers. But by that time, we had in Clearwater, there was a doctor who was used to, to deal with logging accidents and had no, it was a very small hospital. It was a little shack. And he opened the door and looked at the injured guy and he said immediately, I can't do nothing with this guy. You know, he realized, but then we had no gas in the helicopter to fly him to Kremlups, another 150 kilometer. So a, a res, a, I think an ambulance had to come from the road. There was no ambulance. So they, they came from a different town. It took over an hour. In the meanwhile, the doctor in Clearwater stitched his broken uh, um, cheek. And the ambulance came. We drove him to the Clearwater Hospital. And the, of course, there everybody was alarmed That's, that we come with somebody. By that time, I still thought he's going to die. And he was unconscious. <clears throat> and uh, he did not look good. In the, in the helicopter, in the stretcher, we had him. I lifted his arm up. And of course, you get tired after a while. When I lowered his arm a little bit, he started to mourn a little. And when I lifted it up, it looks like it's better for him. But when we had him in the hospital, the guy in the hospital asked me, what happened to the guy? I said, well, he fell at least 30 meters from a helicopter. Oh, he didn't believe it. He yelled, well, he shouted at me. And how, how far or how high is that house across from that was in the city? I counted the stories and I told him, well, three meters per story. And I told him, he shook his head and left. <laughs> then I wanted to know whatever the chances are that the guy survives. Uh, he was not very friendly. He said, at that stage, I can't say anything. He didn't, of course, know. I understood later on that he had, had no idea. <clears throat> it ended up that he had all broken ribs, ribs on one side, all the ribs were broken. He had an incredible amount of blood in the lungs, you know, that he inhaled from 
injury in the mouth and uh, he was 16 days in intensive care and then he he did he left the hospital but had to sign that he could leave it it was a damn bad accident there mm. that certainly makes you realize how remote you are if it even takes you that long with the helicopter. The accident happened probably at 3 o'clock in the afternoon and the guy was in the hospital by 11 o'clock in the evening. And we did as fast as we could. What do you think was the reason that the, the cargo hook came up? <laughs> the day before we did a lot of snowball files and we skied the, the area and we landed quite often on a lake, on a mountain lake. And there was so much snow that the snow was so heavy that water came above the snow and didn't freeze anymore. And the cargo hook is the lowest spot on the helicopter and that ended up in the water. So I feel, and most of the people thought, that the cargo hook was only frozen in and not clicked in because they fly two tons around in the summer with the cargo hook. But it can't be hooked in, you know, it, it was frozen <clears throat> and uh, it didn't. So looking back, you were the first guide at Mike Wiggly Heli Skiing. You skied for almost every day for 11 winter seasons and you never had a guest seriously involved in an avalanche. How much of it do you think is strategically knowing when to hold back when you know that you don't know how much of it was just really being dedicated to learning more about the topic and to improving your skills and how much of it do you think was luck a little bit from everything <laughs> but uh, we didn't guide that we had to depend on luck but after 11 seasons, that some people and some, you know, in that industry, they said, what was they saying? That sort of sooner or later it has to get me, you know, because the odds are against you. That's what, that's what, what I was told. The odds are against you. Some, sometimes because sort of they were looking that we came through without an accident. We had close, very close calls. We had averages, but people survived. And that is where the luck comes in. You know that, <clears throat> and one avalanche, I remember, I saw the guy flying over three, four meter high trees. He never touched the treetop. He came out of a snow cloud and the guy survived, <laughs> you know. And uh, yeah, it was that we, until the end, we never guided in a way that we depended on luck, knowing taking risk we didn't do. But we, of course, skied very steep slopes. You know what, our, that's a probably an interesting part. The guest, heli ski guests get, uh, it gets promoted by skiing steep and deep. You know, they get films showing with very steep slopes, with very lots of snow. And Pink Sennel 
the chief snow engineer from Snowbird, had a good saying, lots of snow, steep slope, got the slide. You know, that simple. <laughs> and then if there is wind, it's even quicker. <laughs> it makes it worse. But uh, we skied incredible steep terrain. But I think that we got to know the area pretty well. And the biggest thing for us was to pull back when the avalanche hazard went up, to pull early enough back, you know. We skied incredible steep. And I remember once you, when you came to the edge, you hardly saw down to the landing. You saw on the helicopter blades way down there. You, you looked on top of the blades and you skied with a group down there, all one shoot. And uh, yeah, but only when we didn't see avalanches and all our profiles. Later on, we dug almost daily snow profiles, and we were, I, after three, four years, I did not want to go out skiing without knowing all the layers of snow, how they are bounded and how they are, and not only the surface about the skiing ability. Of course, that was important that we got the guests back, you know, but uh, also, that we sort of knew what steepness you can ski at that time. And we also worked with tricks, like uh, there were really steep shoots in the trees and excellent skiing, north facing, lots of snow in those shoots. <clears throat> and when the weather was good for a long time, surface war was our biggest problem. It got snowed in and it slid. And surface water stayed sometimes for five, six weeks active in there when the temperatures were right. It seems like when it got snowed in around minus four, it kept the longest active in there. And so we destroyed, we disturbed the surface water by skiing even in a nice day where the glaciers would have been good, those steep parts of the tree run. We excited the people to go on a steep tree run but we knew we need to shake up the surface so we can go back when the weather is so bad that we can't fly to other landings. We could go to those ones we, which we always tracked up when there was a, after a snowfall. Like the Alberg does the same thing. In Alberg, I'm sure a lot more accidents would happen if it's not over skied. That's interesting. It sounds like you developed or... We're part of developing quite a few of the pages of the mechanized skiing playbook that they <laughs> go through these days. Well, that's not that we realized that, you know, that there were areas where we mainly, our main concern was in bad weather days to get the people out. In the beginning, all in my time, we had not very good accommodation. And when we were out skiing, the people were happy and uh, booked again. In bad weather days, you run out of runs pretty quick. And so we wanted to keep those open even when the avalanche hazard went up because of certain layers in there. We disturbed always those, some of those bad weather runs were quite steep. People liked them. You always say you, you barely ever took a day off 
in the seasons where you worked there and where you worked as as operations manager why why did you never take time off well i took sometimes if i had to stay in blue if i had to stay in blue river a day off didn't mean much i was still involved in the whole thing you know and um, I remember once in all the time I went to Banff and I didn't have a car. So I had to hitchhike to Banff and nah, it, it didn't. But when I came back, I, I felt very, very uncertain what I can do out there. Now, even when my colleagues did all the snow profiles, but I didn't have the hands in the snow. When I went out every day, I felt that I have a very close grip to the snowpack and that I knew exactly where the wind deposited some dangerous snow or <clears throat> where the surface was still active and developed. I could still tell you where, but usually the dangerous spots are when it hasn't snowed for a long, longer time. Those are the ones who are the best skiing, you know, the, in the north faces where the surface stays the longest active. So I, I did not feel good when I was away too long because I didn't feel safe. And I had to sign, I think after the fifth year of operation, Mike made me sign to be in charge for safety for the whole operation. He paid very well. I loved it very much. I would have worked almost for nothing <laughs> because I was so involved and I liked it so much. But, yeah. but there's a lot of <clears throat> yeah, responsibility behind you. And it's better when you're out there every day. So you, did, you don't miss a snowfall or a weather change or anything. <laughs> So being out there and observing every day was key to your confidence. Can you give us an example of a close call where you still think back and where even though you were out there so much and you had such a good grip on the situation, nature surprised you? Yeah, there were a few. <clears throat> wow. There are times when you go closer to a hazard because you got the guests there and you want to give them the maximum and the best. And one time I skied, I landed on top of a ridge and I skied below a cornice. And the cornice didn't look, look to me like it's going to break. And I skied about uh, 150, 200 meters below the cornice over to a half decent safe, good slope, which I could ski all the way to the valley. But there was no landing except here, and I had to go under the cornice. <clears throat> and when I had my whole group over there, the cornice broke. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you think, well, you don't need that luck. or. One time, right after the training week, where we dug snow profiles, in one of our main runs in those days, a north-facing, really steep avalanche chute. 
I took a snow profile, but uh, in, when we arrived, but I didn't go in the into that shoot because I was afraid that it could release, and I wanted first to know what the snowpack is. I dug down, or we dug down, two meter fifty or more, and it looked very good, well bounded. I said, "Wow, it's the first good scope. It was a challenging slope. Uh, I'm gonna ski that." And the, the group came, and I went over to ski it. It was gone. The whole thing avalanched. <laughs> While I was, I said, what the hell? I was shocked. It can't be big. My snow profile was still there. That little slope slide. But there was, later on, I found out there was an early winter slide. Took out the first snow layers. And the second snow which came, had a really cold temperature after, and it all went to Deptor, Aufbau, and and then a dump of snow came on top, and it slid. But you couldn't see it in the terrain. You saw nothing that there was already an early avalanche. But that early avalanche took that snow away, which insulated enough that there was no Deptor. Yeah. And obviously you couldn't see it in the snow. I could, no, you couldn't see it. That was all the wind and the snow was all. So you thought, holy shit, it would have gotten me. Yeah. I Many times I, when I talk to the guides, I said, well, it is like a ski boot when you buckle it up. When the buckle is really tight, that means the slope is safe when you talk in pictures. And then you start to lift that buckle. And that means the slope gets more unstable, unstable. But then it reaches a point. If you lift a little more, ping. And I said, we should try not to get into a slope which the buckle is already up here. <laughs> no. We sometimes keep a slope where the buckle is maybe halfway up. And you do one at a time and all the procedures, but this is already. <laughs> Don't fall. Yeah. <laughs> That's really interesting. And sounds like such an exciting time and a time where so many things developed in the heli ski industry that still up to date are the procedures and standards that we use now. Even safety gear. I, in fact, uh, there wasn't safety gear at the beginning, not no, as we nothing, know it now. Nothing. Beacons? Did you have beacons? Yeah. I took 16 mics and some money over, and I, took, I bought 16 beacons in Austria. That's another thing. And uh, in the beginning, we didn't have more guests than that we had a beacon and the guests had a beacon. But then we grow, grew bigger, and there were times when there were not enough beacons around. So we had to decide either a few guests don't go get a beacon or we go ski without a beacon. Later on, there was more money in the company, and we bought almost every year new ones and developed into routine. But then there was an accident, not in our company. You wouldn't believe. We didn't check the guests that the beacon was on and that they had it even along, you know. And there was an accident and they didn't find the guy. He had a beacon which had a different frequency. So that put another really heavy thought in our head that nobody 
steps in that helicopter without the beacon. <laughs> How um, earlier we talked about the gear and the skis. When did when did that change from the two meter oh, ten oh, long skis to a, the? <laughs> I still remember on very good guests which came every year, and then they got a little older. In the business, they maybe had a too good of a life and had a little more weight on, and they couldn't handle those two meter narrow skis. But we didn't have anything else. You know, we we did go shorter, but that didn't help that much. You know, and then <clears throat> there was a guy. He's actually from Salzburg, and he was a snowboarder, <clears throat> and he is anyway an inventor. You know, he. He takes everything he takes, he thinks how you could improve that. And he realized that the snowboarders doing much better in certain powder or in powder than the skiers with the long, narrow skis. So he got two snowboards and put two bindings on, each a binding on. And then he realized this is too, too big. Then he started to file the snowboards down to a half decent but double white size, and they were 180. They called them fat boys. <clears throat> and he tried to find a company who makes those skis. And I was, <clears throat> I knew quite well Alois Romos, the founder and owner of uh, Atomic Skis <clears throat> from an earlier thing I knew him. And Actually, it said, Mike and CMH, they asked me to go there and order as many as you can get because there were only maybe in the beginning 10 bears or 15 out. There was a fight for those white skis. <laughs> then I went to Romos and I said, price doesn't matter, 200 pair of those fat skis we need. You know? And he told me a long time how much. In those days, they didn't have those machines in making skis that could just do anything. You know, that was handwork. And he told me how expensive it is and how much labor it is into the scotty. And then he thought, it's not a, never going to pick up that more people, that it's going to be a business. But he decided to do those 200. That was not enough. Next day, they needed more. And then, uh, of course, the other key factor is there was Vöckl in Germany. They found out. So they came out with wider skis. And then every factory came with the fat skis. But that was 80, early 80, or 81, 82 maybe, where they came really out. So most of my guiding in Canada was with the long, narrow ones. <clears throat> but I had very interesting experiences with the good skiers. Ken Reed, the world champion, he was one of our guests. <clears throat> and he came with his wife every, every year. <clears throat> and he, of course, wasn't into racing circus anymore, gained a little weight, but he came with his 210 bus signals and still very strong skier. He was the best one in the crazy Canucks who won most of the difficult downhills. <clears throat> but he 
Herasatche had them in powder with his two tanned rossignols, and his wife, who also was in the racing circus in Canada, used the fat short ones. She could circles around him. <laughs> <laughs> but he was too proud <laughs> to go on the fat ones. And there was quite a problem that some of the returning guests, the good skiers, were too proud to go. And then the name was pretty bad, Fat Boy. You know, the, they didn't like to write a fat boy. <laughs> <laughs> Not the sporty guy. Yeah. But it was, after all, a fast transition? Or yeah, was it yeah. The first and second year, maybe 60, 70% immediately. And they never let those keys go. The first ones who came over, people start, tried to buy them. For any money you could, they would buy those keys because they thought they're hard to get. <clears throat> but once there were enough here, then they started to improve. You know, the first ones were still too long and too wide. And then the what we have now, you know. But skiing became so easy. We lost some skiers who could have put maybe five more years on and enjoyed it. They could have afforded it and, and all but they would not be able to handle those two ten narrow skis. <clears throat> and uh, with the fat skis, we skied maybe 20% more vertical, which was in business-wise good. And uh, people skied without too much trouble. We lost some people because they were not good enough in shape anymore to handle those. When the snow got a little difficult, they, they didn't want to spend so much money and having such a hard time to get down the hill. Mm -hmm. That was a revolution. Um, the president from CMH, Mark Kingsbury, put it in a good sentence. He thought, he told me once, they caught somebody sleeping. He meant us. Why didn't we think about that? Why did the snowboarder, an inventor from Salzburg, get out with that? Why didn't we think it? Afterwards, we think, what the hell was wrong in our head? Yeah. <laughs> he, he is right. You know, <laughs> why didn't we think about making them wider and shorter and softer? So after, uh, after your time in Canada uh, has come to an end, you came back to Austria. Um, okay. What did you do afterwards? Were you still involved in the snow and avalanche industry? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Well, this, that was interesting because I wasn't sure. I wanted to stay actually in Canada, but Shelley, my wife, <clears throat> she's Canadian, and we met Heli Skiing, and she, I got her to work in the office <laughs> in my Quigley Heli Skiing, and she skied with us. She skied for a movie with Ron Miller. He's a very good skier. <clears throat> and we came back to Austria just for a test, and she liked it here. She liked the farm, she liked the animal, and we opened, or we took over a ski school. I was always in Austria an examiner for all the ski instructor courses, and I was uh, the coordinator for the snow and avalanche exams for all Austria. I coordinated that for 11 years. And so I was always involved in that, which I, still was after, after I quit uh, in Canada. 
it was very close after 11 years to start with CMH and nuclear Hans Klim and offered the new large he built in those days for the large manager and go back to Helly Skiing. But I applied for the ski school here. The guy who had it died and the government gives those ski schools away, decides who gets it. <laughs> and they decided for me. And it's quite a good business. The farm, I like the farm, Shelley liked the farm. And well, we got back to farming and skiing and ski doing <laughs> and have a happy life. And nice that you guys went back to Canada and and I worked out. You are, you are in totally the same business as what I did most of my life, but in a different stage. Look, at my ski guiding course, we did one snow profile. Snow profile or the study of the snow layers wasn't so common. I want to tell you one interesting <clears throat> from Zermatt is in Switzerland, one of the most famous places for ski touring and mountaineering. <laughs> the uh, Julen is a dynasty of mountain guides and ski guides in Zermatt. And he came with a private group to our area to ski. And I thought if he comes, I want him to know what our snow layers. I want him, I ask him whatever he's interested in, I show him all what's out there, you know, where we are at the moment, how dangerous or what the snow layers are, what the weather forecast is, what to expect, because he was an absolute profi. <clears throat> he said in his slow Swiss way, he's not interested in that. He doesn't look at home into the snow. <laughs> Guided all his life, never do, made us. That snow, that's a quite an interesting, <clears throat> experience they had. <clears throat> I think it started with the first snow profiles in the 70s. Maybe some like in Snowbird Alta, there were experts that did that earlier. But here in Austria, the guides thought that they know it anyway by looking at it and have it in their bum, what's out there. <clears throat> And then there came a time, and I was quite involved because of my experience in Canada. I made them do snowball files, they shoveled, they shoveled. And we tried to read everything out. But then I realized that we made a big mistake because most of the, those people who did a snowball file didn't find the best spot for the snowball file. You know, you can, and uh, who is the guy who, told us that the snow profile, Werner Munter. Werner Munter was right. He explained us that we put way too much weight on the snow profile. We tried to decide everything on the snow profile. But as I said in my close call, that I did a snow profile in five meter later, five meter over was a totally different situation. So there's more than the snow profile. I don't want to ski. Without her, but there's more to it than the snow profile. Werner Munter came out very strong. They hated him all, but later on they started to realize what he wants to say. Yeah. 
All right, I think uh, it's time to wrap it up. It was a very long, but very, very um, interesting uh, interview. Well, um, thank you if very you, much if you for want, taking time. If you want to do some parts new, of course. No, I think it's perfect. <laughs> Still very interesting for me, and I'm still, well. This long but very interesting episode has come to an end. Thank you for listening. This episode was produced by Cameron Griffin. Music credit goes to Gravy, and the artwork was created by Mike Tia. Visit us on social media at the Avalanche Hour podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Subscribe, rate, and review the show on whatever podcast platform you are listening on and tell a friend. Stay safe, ski well, and have fun. And hear from us next time when we are back with another episode from Europe provided by the Austrian Association for Snow and Avalanches.